Um, we're actually going to be in the, the book of James this morning. Um, it was kind of funny because when Pastor had asked me to cover for the services, it was actually before we started having any issues and, and went to the ER and that kind of stuff. And the, and the Lord immediately um, gave me uh, James 1, uh, speaking of trials and uh, diverse temptations. And it was kind of funny because every time the Lord ever brings that passage to mind and kind of uh, works my heart, it's always right before something happens. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've claimed this passage as a way of, of encouragement, a way of uh, seeking faithfulness through, through hard times. Um, in fact, I, one time I, 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 I joke and say it was a mistake, but... I asked the Lord to grow me in faith and to grow me in patience. And you never ask God. You never ask God to help you grow in patience because he will deliver. He will. And, and you ask for wisdom. Uh, one of the best ways to grow through wisdom is to go through a situation where you need some wisdom. Um, so the, the funny thing is, is uh, uh, now we weren't, we weren't asking for the Lord to give us patience or wisdom in the situation. Well, uh, previously before what happened. Um, but trials, trials are so, so um, they're, I mean, they're, they're typically very um, regular in our lives. We, we can't usually spend too much of time before we have to, to, uh, face a trial, a difficulty, a burden. Um, it, it seems like as soon as we, we start to forget about the last burden we had to deal with, the Lord gives us another. Um, but it, it's all for, for good. It's, it's for us to grow in, in many different ways. And, and, and sometimes it's not even the Lord that gives us the temptation, oftentimes, or give us, gives us the trial to deal. Sometimes we get ourselves in these trials. I can't tell you how many times I've got myself in something stupid and, and had to ask for the Lord's help to get me through something, and it was, was my own doing. But trials, um, there are always silver linings with trials. Um, of course, it reminds me of, of Noah on the ark. Noah on the ark was having such a hard time trying to fish and, and get some fish, something to eat, and fishing and fishing, and he realized he made a mistake in only bringing two worms. I got. I at least got one laugh out of that one. Um, it also reminds me of the the therapist that was working with with a, a man, and the therapist had had said, "Are you aware that you have incredibly difficult uh, verbalizing your your emotions?" And the man said, "I can't say I'm surprised." And the therapist says, "Exactly." Um, and of course, it also reminds me of of. The, the, the two love-struck couple just recently engaged, and the, the young lady says to her fiancé, when we get married, I want to share all your worries, troubles, and lighten your burden. And the young man says, quizzedly, it's very kind of you, darling, but I don't have any worries or troubles. And the fiancé returns and says, well, that's because we're not married yet. Now that's not true with with Amanda. I'm not. That is not something I, I'm I'm saying about Amanda. But there's always a, a silver lining in 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 difficulties. There's always a way of having uh, joy. There's always a way of of um, finding happiness in even the most darkest of times. 
But we're going to read James 1. And you guys are lucky I had about 15, 16 pages of, of notes that we were going to be going through this morning. But uh, the, I went ahead and, and cut it down to just a, a few verses. Um, I, I, love, I love this. I, James is just such an encouraging book to read out of. But we're going to read James 1, 1 through 4. And it says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, I just thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, uh, even the even though you're you're not the one that always puts us through these trials, and, and oftentimes it's it's us that puts us in our own difficult times. Lord, I, I just pray that we will remember and keep in mind this passage as we face any difficulty in life, and to know that we can have joy and happiness, and find encouragement even in in dark moments. And to know that there's a a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not for nothing. Lord, again, I just thank you for all that you've done. And Lord, I I just pray that you use this time in your word. Not because of me, not for me, but Lord, for for your glory. And Lord, again, I, I just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. The first thing that we have to realize in this letter that's, that is written is that it was written to brothers and sisters in Christ that came oftentimes out of the Jewish faith. In fact, he, he starts this, this, uh, this letter off, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scra- uh, scattered abroad, greeting. This was oftentimes written to Jewish people that had recognized that Christ was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, and that he was the Savior, which would automatically put them at odds with everyone they have known and loved. When someone that was Jewish actually accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the whole community would have turned their backs on them excommunicated them from the family and oftentimes would persecute these Christians, these believers. And of course, when we start talking about trials and persecution, the the first group to to really persecute Christians was the the Jewish faith. In fact, the, the Romans saw the Christians as a Jewish sect. And the, Jews, the, the Jewish people were protected by law. So originally, the Romans would not touch Christians. And almost all of the persecution that they would face at that time was from their family, was from their friends. And it's, it's kind of hard for us to think and, and really realize the gravity of that but to imagine your own friends and family to turn their back on you 
and wish you more than death. I, I couldn't imagine sitting there when we were at a restaurant just yesterday. I couldn't imagine those three people I was sitting with one day hating me and trying to hurt me in any way, shape, or form they could. But that's the kind of persecution and trials that James was writing to encourage these Christians through. And of course, the, the earliest martyrs that we had were typically by the hands of the, of the Jewish uh, people. Now, of course, the first, um, the first person to actually persecute Christians during this time was Nero. He was actually the first Roman person to start hurting, persecuting, and killing Christians. And he was, a, he was, he was in one of the most evil leaders of that time. You start reading what Nero was like, and there was there's the, I, I I knew some of the persecution that he would do, which would I it's hard to read, but you start reading his background of who he was, it really just it blamed my mind. But Nero was a man that would blame Christians for all of the controversial issues, and the mistakes he would make. He would turn around and blame the Christians, and then persecute and and punish them. His mother, the the plot the plotting Agrippin uh, I can't even pronounce her name Agrippinina, managed to convince her husband Claudius to adopt her son Nero and put him ahead of Claudius, uh, Claudius's own son. So Nero's mother convinced the king to put her son as the next heir in line. Of course, first in, in line for that throne, the maternal concern was not satisfied. She then murdered the king, and Nero came to rule the world at age 17. 17 years old. He was responsible for the stabbing of his mother, beheading of his wife, and displayed her, her head. And there's, there's actually a ton of other terrible things that he would do to his own family. These are the people that he loves. Now, I would hate to be someone he hated. But of course, he was the first one to persecute the Christians under the, the, under the Roman rule. And he would go so far as to take Christians and burn them at the stake just to light his courtyard. You, this this is this is some of the mild things that he would do to Christians, and when you hear that, James says, "My brethren, count it all joy." In the first sixty years, there are thousands of Christians that were killed. In fact, historians say today, in the past two thousand years. In the past 2,000 years, there have been over 70 million Christians that have been killed for being a Christian. And the crazy thing is, they actually say that two-thirds, two-thirds of the 70 million Christians that have been killed have been in the past 100 years. 
we as Americans, we, we really don't realize the trials and burdens that some Christians face, especially when it comes to the aspect of, of persecution. Because we, we really, I mean, the, the most of the persecution that we ever read of is maybe some, um, uh, some baker that doesn't want to bake something for a certain group of people and has to go to, to court to fight. That, that is probably the most extreme persecution that we usually see. And of course, no doubt there have been people killed for their faith, even in the United States, but we don't hear about it. But there's still thousands and millions of people killed across the world, in Asia, in Africa, especially those close to the Middle East, for their faith. And it puts a little perspective, even, even for me, an aspect of I oftentimes take for granted the, the American life that we have here as Christians. But nonetheless, we are encouraged to do the same, to praise God and to be happy and to have joy whenever we do face trials. Now, when we look at James 1... The first thing that we have to realize is how he, um, he addresses the attitude. He tells us to embrace trials. Of course, he says, my brethren, my brethren. If you, you read that and you just bypassing, okay, yeah, we're family, and you don't think much of that. But when he says, my brethren, this statement of who he is talking to goes very deep. He is addressing the family of God. We have to immediately remind ourselves that we are not alone in these trials that we face. We are to support one another in these trials, and we are to remember that we are a child of God. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Romans 12.5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. 1 Corinthians 12.26, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer there, uh, with, with it. Or one member be honored, all members rejoice with it. John 13.34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And Psalms 50 verse 10 also says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. There should be no greater community or close-knit community than the Christian faith. And the funny thing is, is I've I've been involved in a lot of different uh, organizations through my life, But my closest friends have always been those of the Christian faith. The strongest bonds I've ever held in my life have been through the Christian faith. And the greatest sacrifices I have often made with personal sacrifice have always been those of the Christian faith. When James says, my brethren... He is talking of the the collective Christian faith. People that he loves and would give anything for. But of course, he's here trying to encourage us. He says, count it all 
joy. Count it all joy. And there has to be a better focus on our attitude when entering and dealing with a trial. And it kind of reminds me, um, whenever we enter into a trial, uh, I, I don't know if any of you have watched track or have been part of track or have uh, kids or grandkids or family that have been in track. If you've ever watched sprinters, they get down in the, the crouched position. The funny thing is, is when they're in that crouched position, their, their, their first initial step is a focus on explosion. They want to launch themselves off of those um i can't remember i can't remember what they're called but the funny thing is is if uh you can be a great sprinter but if you misstep on your first step you have now the biggest challenge to recover from it and the thing is is as a christian when we enter a trial or a difficulty or a burden not having the right mindset and attitude entering into it will make it only that much more difficult going through it. We must have the proper attitude when it is that when we go into um, a trial. And, you know, there's no better person I can think of when it comes to dealing with a difficult situation and not having the right attitude than Jonah. Jonah, oh my goodness, he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to the point that his attitude was so bad that he's like, yep, you guys are facing this storm because of me. Yep, yeah, whatever. It's blasé, he's jaded. And I hope as Christians that we don't become jaded like him. Jonah 4, 5 through 11 says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till uh, he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from this grief, his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd, but God prepared a warm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote uh, the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. And said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then saith the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern themselves at their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Jonah had such a poor attitude. There's a few things in this passage that we would, honestly, we read and kind of overlook. But Jonah had such a poor attitude that he set up a booth. After he preaches in Nineveh, Nineveh repents. He sets up a booth. And he waits for them to be destroyed because he knew eventually they would. He had such a poor attitude that he 
instead of moving on and doing the next thing that God wanted him to do, he, he built a booth. He wanted to watch the destruction of other people because he had such a poor attitude and wrong, the poor mindset. He gets upset over a gourd. He, get, he had more emotional investment and had more care for a gourd than he did for thousands of people and children. And it's, it's so sad. And, it, and another thing is the fact that he was suicidal. He was suicidal, wishing death upon himself. Why? Because he had the wrong attitude. He had a, 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 just a terrible attitude. Now, on the other extreme, the, the, one, the two people I can't help but think of that show the, the perfect example of what it, would sh- what it should be like whenever we do face trials and even persecution itself. I mean, Jonah didn't even face persecution in his situation. He was just told to share the message of God. That was all that he was told to do. Acts 16, verses 25 to 34, and it says, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone, uh, everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of a sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here, and Uh, Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He in all his straight way And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Paul and Silas actually had persecution they were facing at that moment. They had a trial and a burden. But their attitude was the deciding factor on what took place. There, and I can, I, in all honesty, uh, when I have faced trials in my life and I have had the proper attitude, I'm, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But the funny thing is, is when I actually have the proper attitude and I face trials and others that are watching me see it, the world doesn't respond that way. Good night. You see someone make the coffee wrong at a Starbucks and Karen loses her mind. Her, it's just, it's, it's, it's absurd. There's no patience or long-suffering with the world. But the interesting thing is, is because Paul and Silas had the right attitude. They were able to witness a miracle they were able to be an encouragement to around them because the prisoners, all the prisoners were still there. Not just him and Silas. They set such a good example, other evildoers are like, well, hey, I want to hang out with them. They got something going on. 
to the point where they were able to see people saved because of their attitude and the message they brought. Of course, we are to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Now, the interesting thing is, when we start looking into some of these words that the, that the, the Lord uh, decided to use, it, it adds a little depth to what's being said. Of course, falling comes from a Greek word only used three times in the Bible. So this word fall isn't like you fall over and trip on something. When you actually go to like a Strong's Accordance or another uh, a help, uh, another study guide and whatnot, it defines the Greek word as to fall into something that is all around. In fact, the two other times this Greek word is used in the Bible is Luke 10.30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. The interesting thing is, is when you see the word fall, falling among thieves, there was an over-encompassing. It was surrounding. There was no way for him to escape. It was completely uh, um, overtaken him, these thieves. And the interesting thing is in Acts 27, 41, it says, And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and four parts stuck fast, the uh, remained unmoved, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. The funny thing is, is the spot where these two uh, bodies of water would fall into each other, all encompassing. The... I don't know if you have ever spent much time at the beach and whatnot, but a rip current, the currents of these bodies of water, they're just unbelievably strong. And to have two massive bodies of water to come together and converge, there's going to be a current. It's going to overtake. It's going to suck things in. It's it's going to completely fall into the seas. When we do fall into trials, it's typically never small, usually. It's usually something that's going to be difficult. I, not, not, to, not to embarrass Amanda or anything like that. When, when we were going to the ER, it was difficult It was difficult to see her writhing in pain, gasping for help, and not be able to do anything. When these trials come, and these trials and burdens come, we oftentimes will fall into them. And it won't, it'll feel like there's no help. It's almost like drowning in an ocean being overtaken by evil men, thieves, ripping and taking everything it can. But trials are not meant to be easy. Of course, trials are oftentimes not the same. 
when it talks about diverse, it's talking about a variety. It's going to be various. And temptation does not speak of the temptation that the cookie jar calls out to me in an evening. Temptation is not not like that. Temptation speaks of a proving, a trial, or a difficulty to deal with. But let me clarify, God does not tempt us with sin. It is impossible for God to do so. In fact, in the same chapter, and I I feel like James had to clarify this, but James actually declares, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Of course, the temptation he speaks of in this verse is speaking of sin, of evil, but God, and this is the temptations he's talking about earlier in the chapter, is trials and burdens. But let me clarify, because a lot of people take that passage and and they twist it. When he talks about temptations, um, he is not talking about sin in the beginning of the chapter. By the end of the chapter, he's talking of sin. And God does not tempt us to sin. Now, of course, if you continue on, it says, knowing this. This is a surety, a promise from God. Too many Christians add a question mark at the end of God's statements. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. There's no question mark in that statement. But sadly, Christians will read that as if if God himself is wondering if he'll do something good out of this situation. Too many Christians put a question mark where it doesn't belong. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Even in these burdens and in these trials, God has something good come out of it of course knowing this the trying of your faith the word trying speaks of a trial by fire a testing through fire purity through difficulty something of greater value and long uh, longer lasting than uh, than gold itself the funny thing is is scientists still argue today if gold can deteriorate and some say that it would take gold now it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but scientists have actually figured out that gold will actually deteriorate. Now imagine tin with about 80 zeros behind it. I mean, we're past trillion upon trillion upon trillion, and scientists have figured out that it's going to take millenniums of time for gold to deteriorate. But you as a Christian, if you stay faithful through trial the good that comes out of it is greater than gold and will last longer than gold. The value is, is just unbelievable. In fact, 1 Peter 1-7 through says that the trial, uh, the, yeah, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that, uh, that perisheth, thought it to be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Just a side note, it's kind of funny when science backs up what the Bible teaches. 
when the Bible says that gold will one day deteriorate and go away, and scientists have argued, um, these people that wrote the Bible didn't know this, but scientists have figured out that, yes, gold will eventually deteriorate so many years down the road, Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When we have faith in God, he is pleased. And not only is he pleased when we have faith in him, but when we believe that he is who he says he is and will reward us for it, he, he does. And I'll be honest, I, I read that verse many a times, just the first part of that verse, but without faith it is impossible to please him because I heard everyone quote it that way. But when we actually read that second part of that passage, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, we must believe that God is who he is. It's the first part of faith. But the part that was a struggle for me is to believe that he was a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When I read that verse, I was like, man, that's something I'm going to struggle with. Because sometimes I lose, I'll be honest, sometimes I lose faith. It's, it's easier said than done to have the, the right attitude 100% of the time. I mean, we're all human. We're going to do it. But the funny thing is, is to have faith in God that pleases him, we must believe that he is who he says he is. And we must diligently seek him and believe that he's going to reward us for it. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 says, Now if any man build upon his foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, uh, he shall uh, receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire and the bible time and time again uses fire a trial a burning a proving a testing as a way of purifying our lives now this is talking of of uh, not so much judgment but a um a christians coming before christ and giving account of our lives and what we have done with it, if we have built our lives upon stubble and hay that'll burn up in the fire and be only ashes, or but gold and silver and precious stones only become more refined and more valuable after a trial, and what Christian are we going to be in these trials? Is our life built upon hay, stubble, and rubble that'll burn and, and only become soot and worthlessness after a burden? Or will our life be purified and cleaner and stronger and of more value after we endure a burden? And it speaks of worketh patience. And when it speaks of worketh, it, it is an aspect of performing, accomplishing, achieving, to work out, to render Patience isn't just something we have. It, it, it naturally develops as we go through a difficult time. And I, I, like, I was in college, and I, I read this passage, and I really just didn't think about what it was that I was asking for. But I asked the Lord to, 
helped me to grow in patience when I was in Bible college. And it was a difficult few years that I had faced after asking the Lord to do so. At one point in time, my dad was still in the Navy, and the Navy had told us that he was MIA. The ship that he was on was gone. And they had lost contact with them for such an extended period of time that we needed to start getting ready to to have a funeral. At the same time, the college was telling me, hey, Sam, you have X amount of money that you need to pay or you can't come, keep coming to, to Bible college and you have to, to go back home. And I had difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. It was a trying time. But the Lord saw me through. We finally got word from the, sh- the ship that my dad was on that they were fine. That they had to go radio silent for longer than anyone has really ever seen in the military. The amount of money that I had to pay, and I was working a lot, just doing full-time school and working part-time jobs, trying to just make ends meet. A group of teenagers from the the church I used to go to in Washington State before I came to college put together a love offering. They didn't know how much I needed, but the funny thing is, is they put an offering together, and down to the penny, they gave the exact amount that was necessary, and no one knew. They just gave me a call and they said, hey, Sam, we heard that you were having a hard time at college just getting the finances together. And we put together this this love offering for y'all, or for you. And it was down to the penny. And there was so many other situations like that. I I learned the hard way. You don't ask God for patience because he's going to give it to you. But that's how patience grows. You don't get patience before the trial. You get patience through the trial. Romans 12.12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Romans 5.1-7 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us for when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die of course we also must recognize in this passage that there has to be faithful faithfulness in the trial We must have long-suffering. But let patience... James knew it was going to be difficult. So after saying all this, he says, but just hold on, it's going to be hard. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And you have to see these trials through. 
A Christian that asks God to remove a trial instead of asking for grace, strength, wisdom, or patience is like an athlete asking God to take away conditioning and practice before a game. And it reminds me of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. A heartbreaking experience for any teenager. Then he became one of the greatest basketball players in the history of the game itself. Of course, you can have people argue LeBron James, Michael Jordan. Who? Michael Jordan is hands down. If he's not the best, he's second best. He was, an, he was the one that came up with this famous quote. He said, I have missed more than, more than 9,000 shots in my career. I have lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I have been entru- uh, entrusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I have failed over and over again in my life. That is why I succeed. Now, granted, our life is not a basketball game. And yes, failure will lead to success. But through those trials and through those burdens, we must stay faithful. How sad would it be if Michael Jordan just quit as a teenager? Oh, they kicked me from the, they kicked me from the team. I'm never playing basketball again. Man, basketball would not be the same today if it didn't have Michael Jordan. But what would your life be if you gave up on the first burden or trial you faced? I'm not doing this anymore. God has been unfaithful to me. He's put me in this difficult situation, hasn't taken me out. I've seen so many Christians, the first thing they ask as soon as they have a trial, oh, God, deliver me from this. God has you in that trial for a reason, to grow as a Christian. He wants you purer. He wants you stronger. He wants to make you of greater value in your life. I couldn't imagine where I'd be today if I gave up on those trials. I couldn't imagine where I'd be today if, honestly, if I had given up and blamed God for for what happened to to my dad and and let bitterness grow in my heart. I wonder what would have happened if I just quit immediately as soon as the college said, hey, you don't have enough money, you need to be ready to leave, and I just said, oh, fine, I'm just going to leave then. I honestly couldn't imagine what my life would be today if I didn't work through those trials and burdens and I demanded God to deliver me every moment, something difficult happened. God will see you through these storms, trials and difficulties. Perfect. When he speaks of us being perfect, he's talking of maturity as a Christian. When he says to be entire, he is talking about us being provided for, wanting nothing. You will not lack anything that you need in your life. Galatians 6.9 says, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. First Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he that calleth you who also will 
do it. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the uh, profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. There was a passage I, I read just earlier. There was a passage I just read earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it talks about that precious gold, silver, and precious stone, way, uh, the hood, uh, hood, wood, hay, and stubble. My dyslexia is kicking in. The beginning, or just previous before that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 to 11 says, For we are laborers together with God. Those trials you think you're alone and have no one there with you, God is there beside you, laboring oftentimes he's just waiting for us to ask him for help. He's simply patient with us. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man that take heed how he buildeth thereupon For other foundation can no men lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Whatever trial and burden that we face in life, we must make sure that this life that we're building is upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. No matter how difficult the trial and burden we face, as long as our foundation is secure in the Lord, we have nothing to worry about. Will it be difficult? Praise the Lord, it will. In all honesty, the more difficult it is, oftentimes is greater the outcome. And I oftentimes will praise the Lord for burdens after it's done, but I hope we start with the right attitude. And when we enter a trial and a burden, we take that moment and we just thank God. Lord, thank you. I know this is going to be hard. I know this is going to be difficult, but thank you. Have joy and understand that you're going to have to be faithful. And it's going to be long nights and it's going to be hard days. But oh, the light at the end of the tunnel is glorious. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for the fact that no no matter how large the trial or how difficult the situation is, Lord, you're so much greater. You are so much greater. Lord, you own the hills, the thousand hills with cattle all across as far as the eye can see. Lord, you can provide for us, and I know you will. You've promised it time and time again. And Lord, I just ask that you help us and guide us. Give us the patience that we need. Give us the grace that we need. Give us the wisdom to deal with the situations that we oftentimes 
have to bear. Lord, I I know that we as, as Americans, we don't face the type of persecution that Christians face all across the world. But Lord, no matter what, every trial that we face, whether it be persecution or maybe an illness or maybe a a social issue or maybe even something with our own family. Lord, I, I thank you for the fact that you are there for us. And every time you're there waiting, waiting us, waiting for us to ask, to simply take a moment and thank you and have the right attitude Lord, if Paul and Silas can be persecuted and locked up and no doubt death being a very reasonable outcome or at least an expected outcome they probably faced, it did not affect their attitude and did not affect what they had done to simply be joyful and to sing praises and honor to you. Lord, again, I just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray. Before 